Last week we talked about the jail. We talked about how the physical oppressive slavery that Israel found themselves in Egypt was a picture of the spiritual condition that we were in before we got saved. We were slaves. Israel was slaves to Egypt. We were slaves to sin. If you look at Romans 6, verse 6, it talks about how before Jesus did what he did, we were slaves to sin. And that's really what I want to talk about this morning. Uh, what did Jesus do? What did he do? How did God bust Israel out of Egypt? And I usually don't give titles. To, I mean, I have titles for my messages usually, but I don't, I don't tell you what they are. You can, if you look at podcasts or listen to them, you can see the title of the message. But I'm going to tell you last week's and this week's. Is that cool? Last week's, it was called The Jail. Okay? We talked about the people of Israel, the oppression. They were slaves. It was The Jail. And this week, and you can write this down, it's called The Jimmy. Okay? Last week's The Jail. This week is The Jimmy. Uh, if you've been around a little while, you know that, that uh, Jimmy can be used as a noun. It can be used as a verb. As a noun, it's J-E-M-M-Y. And it's like a crowbar. It's, like, it's a short little crowbar that you can use to bust something open. Okay, so when you use it as a verb, J-I-M-M-Y, which is kind of slang, but it actually, people use it so much that it's, you can find it in dictionaries, you can find it in the thesaurus, you can find it in all those kind of places. And so as a verb, it basically means to move or to force. Okay, is that not what we're talking about? We're talking about moving, we're talking about God coming into Egypt and forcing uh, his people uh, out of Egypt. And so the, to move or to force, especially when you're trying to get something open. So the title of this message today is called The Jimmy. Uh, if you look at Isaiah 61, we were there a little bit yesterday or last week. Isaiah 61. It says that the spirit of the sovereign Lord, remember this is a messianic prophecy about Jesus. It says that the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And these are all capital M's on me because it's, it's Jesus. It's prophetic about Jesus. Because the Lord has appointed me or anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And then the New King James Version says, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Okay? We're going to actually look at a couple different meanings of that, of that word that is used for opening right now. Uh, uh, here in this scripture. But the one I want to tell you first, it can be used to mean not just opening, but the most complete opening. Okay? The most complete opening. In other words, it is open and it is never going to be shut again. It is forever open. So you can read it that way. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the forever opening of the prison doors for his people. So if you think about uh, that idea of it being forever open... What is the last thing that Jesus said before he gave up his spirit and went to be with the Father? What was the last thing? You guys remember? He said, it is finished. And then he laid his head down or, and he gave up his spirit, went to the Lord. Some of your versions say that he said, it is complete. Well, that's the idea. What Jesus did forever closed the door to the, pris- uh, to the, pr- uh, to the prison. That's what I'm trying to say. He forever closed the door to the prison. And what he did, dying on the cross, going through all that he did, he would never have to do again. You remember the high priest of Israel would go in to the Holy of Holies once every year. 
And all that he did, all the, the had to do with the blood and all that kind of stuff, he did it every year. But Jesus is saying, this is forever taken care of. I'll never have to do this again. Now remember, we were slaves. Before we were saved, before Jesus did what he did, before uh, uh, we said yes to God, we were slaves. I mean, I remember my story. I don't know about you guys, but for me, I was locked up. You know, I got saved when I was 19, and obviously probably not as much in my childhood, but actually kind of, yeah, I was locked up. I was in the dark. I mean, my life was messed up. I was full of, full of sin, obviously, but I was full of um, regret, full of shame, full of guilt, full of all kinds of stuff. I was basically miserable when it came to, and we talked about this last week, but when I finally came to know Jesus... When I cried out to him, like the people of Israel cried out in distress to the Lord, and he heard their cry, I was miserable. I was done. I was desperate. I was hopeless. And there was nothing that I could do about it. And I was thinking about that this week, about how, you know, there was nothing I could do. I mean, I couldn't say enough prayers. I couldn't do enough things. I couldn't whatever. I was lost. I was in darkness. And I thought about that scripture, and uh, they actually made a song about it. In Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, and it says, and this is a good old King James Version, but it says, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. You remember? Nothing is too difficult for thee. You guys, how many remember that song? Yeah, that's where that came from. Jeremiah 32, 17. Nothing is too difficult. Okay. See, God jimmied the door open and brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We sing that song every now and then. We quote that scripture a lot, but that's what he did. He jimmied open that door and he brought us out of that cell. He brought us out of that darkness into his marvelous light. Colossians 1.13 says that he rescued us from the domain of darkness. And he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Isn't that a powerful imagery? He, He rescued us from that domain of darkness and domain may sound like a big word, but when you are in that domain, you were it is like you are claustrophobic, you are enclosed, you are trapped. And yet he brought us into the kingdom, and we know it's an expansive kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. David said in the Psalm chapter forty, verse two, that he brought me up out of the pit of destru- uh, destruction. That's another way of saying it. That we were in the pit of destruction. He goes on to say, out of the miry clay. And he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. And I was looking at that miry clay right there. It's like, what a, what a weird thing to say. And that word miry clay is like an imagery in that language. It gives a picture of the condition that sin leaves you in. Remember we talked about that last week. Towards the uh, middle of Isaiah 61. It leaves us with a spirit of fainting. That's the idea. The condition that sin leaves you in. And the longer that you stay, the deeper you sink into that. And it's like quicksand. And there's no way to save yourself. There's no way to get yourself out of there, out of the guilt and out of the shame, out of the condition that sin has left you in. But God could. Amen? Amen. And He did. Now the question is, is how did He do it? Okay, that's what we're talking about this morning. How did He, did it? Uh, how did he do it? What did God use to jimmy that door? Okay, and the answer is very simple. Though we're going to look at some more complexities of it. The answer is simple. The crowbar that God used, the tool, the jimmy that God used to jimmy the door open is the blood. 
the blood of the Lamb. Jesus' blood. Okay, it's always been about the blood. That is the crowbar that God used to jimmy open that door. If you look at Revelations chapter 1, verse 5, it says that Jesus released us from our sins by his blood. You guys hear that? Now, we're, we're here and we're at church, and if there's one sermon that we've probably heard our whole life, it's about the blood. We sing about the blood. We've heard the sermon, washed in the blood, whiter than snow, what can wash away my sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus. So we kind of have that in our hopper, you know what I mean? But man, we can never downplay the power of that statement. God jimmied the door of that prison cell of oppression open with the blood. Most of us know all this already. I understand that. But do we understand why this was a most complete opening? Do we understand why Jesus was able to say, it is finished? And why we can say with confidence that I'm free. My sins are forgiven. It's done. It's over with. It's the end of the story. Because that is typically the struggle of most Christians. The condemnation that comes in after we've been saved. So we can't say, oh, we got it. Yeah, we got the blood thing. No, we don't. Because this was a once and for all opening. This was a most complete opening. Look at Colossians 2. I want you to see that. Colossians 2, turn there. I know I use a lot of scriptures, and I don't have you turn to a lot of them. But we're going to turn to a few this morning. Colossians chapter 2. Look what it says, starting in verse, well, we'll look at verse 14 and 15, but look at verse 14. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. It says that he canceled the record that contained the charges against us. Now, most of us understand what that, mean, what that means. He canceled, he wiped away the record that contained the charges against us. What were the charges against us? Our sinful nature. Where do we get that? Why are we guilty? Because Adam and Eve had a bad day, right? Because Adam and Eve had a bad day. You know, because they had a bad day, we're the ones that are having to pay. You know, they should change the lyrics, okay? Because they had a bad day, we're the ones having to pay. We are, we are born, we talked about this a lot last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but we are born guilty. We are born in a sinful nature. But what it says is that Jesus wiped away the record of that charge, that was held against us. It says that he took it and destroyed it by nailing it to the cross. Now, what does that speak of? It speaks of sacrifice. And we know from Scripture that sacrifice speaks of what? Blood. Sacrifice speaks of blood. If you look at First Peter, and I love it because Sean sang a song with this very phrase in it this morning. Peter, in First Peter chapter 1, he calls the blood, Jesus' blood, he calls it precious blood. You know, most people, you know, when you come to the teaching or the considering the blood and what Jesus did and all that stuff, blood, the whole thing is gross. It's, it's gross, you know. But listen, it is precious. And it's precious. The blood is precious because it's personal and it's powerful. Everybody say that. Personal, personal. and it's powerful. powerful. Okay. I want to show you something. I got two kind of two main points this morning. It's personal because, and I want you to write this down. It's personal because the blood speaks mercy to the slave. The blood speaks mercy 
to the slave. Okay? From the Old Testament on, in the New Testament, the, the idea is that of atonement. The blood atones for our sin. That word atonement basically means, it means a covering. But it also means mercy. The general idea of what takes place during atonement is mercy. Okay? Mercy. You can look at Leviticus. You can look these later. They're on the screen. But it talks about how they're to take some blood from the bull and they're to go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood where? Where do they sprinkle? Where do the high priests sprinkle the blood? Upon the mercy seat. Why? Because that's what um, the blood speaks of. It speaks of mercy for those who are bound up, those who are guilty. There's a mercy and there is a releasing. Uh, it talks about it in Exodus chapter 29, also in Exodus 30. It talks about the sin offerings that they had to do and the spilling of blood to make what? Atonement, to apply um, mercy. Romans 5 in the New Testament. It's really the only time that you see this word atonement used in the New Testament, though the idea is obviously all, all over it, especially in Romans. But Romans 5.11 says that, that um, but are unable to enjoy, we are, we are able to enjoy God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received what? The atonement. If the atonement speaks of covering, covering of sin, it speaks of mercy, that's why we're able to re- enjoy God. Why? Because he has shown us mercy. And you guys, the idea of atonement, the idea of mercy, it doesn't even start just with the old covenant and, and Moses and all that. It goes all the way back to Noah. An interesting little fact here. When you read the story of Noah, he's building that ark. He gets it all framed up and ready to go. And then what's one of the last things he does so that it'll float? What did he put on it? Pitch. You guys remember that? Go back and read it. He says that he covered it with pitch. Do you know what the word Hebrew word for pitch is? Kafar. K-A-P-H-A-R. Did you know that's the exact same word that is used in the, um, in the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Testament, the law, the sacrificial system for atonement? It's the same word. So think of it this way. God extended mercy to Noah and to his family. He saved them. He rescued them. He covered them. He made atonement for them in the ark. So there's a history of atonement, isn't there? Right? You guys follow? Isn't that cool? Moses was, I mean, uh, Noah was shown mercy. So we get that. The blood speaks mercy to the slaves. The Blood speaks mercy to those who are in bondage, who need it. And the second point is this. The blood, talking about the powerful. Remember, it's personal and it's powerful. Talking about the powerful. The blood, and this is, this, we, we usually understand kind of the atonement thing. We hang out there. But here's the one that we don't really consider. And that is that the blood speaks mockery to the oppressor. See, the blood speaks mercy to the slave. But it speaks mockery to the oppressor. And what I mean by that, look at Colossians chapter 2 again, but this time, let's read a little bit further. Verse 15. It says, When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, now this is New Testament, and so obviously the rulers and authorities that he's talking about are the, the powers of Satan, the de- demonic forces. Remember Ephesians 6 talks about we don't wrestle against flesh and blood and the armor of God and all that kind of stuff. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, God's enemies, it says he made a public display of them. Some of your versions say he made a public spectacle of the powers of darkness. 
that he made a, an exhibition. You guys hear what I'm saying? Some of your versions actually say mockery, that he made a mockery of the principalities and the rulers. Do you, do you understand that? And then it goes on to say, having triumphed over them through Jesus. I don't know if we've ever thought about that, but what does that tell us? It tells us that one of the things that the blood accomplished, aside from showing mercy to the slave, is that he, God is totally mocking the oppressors. You ever thought about that? That's a pretty powerful thing to think about. You know what I mean? It's like God's got a little attitude. <laughs> he made a public spectacle of them. It's like Paul said in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, where, O oh death, is your sting? Where, O oh death, is your victory? He goes on, the next verse saying, the sting of death is sin, but death, where's your sting? You know, right there, Paul's saying that, and I think he's in the spirit and attitude of a God who says, really? That's all you got? The blood speaks mockery to the oppressor. Satan tried to... Think about all the times that Satan tried to kill Jesus. Tried to kill him as a baby. We know that. Several times as an adult, we know that he tried to kill him. We don't see the story. We don't know for sure. But more than likely, throughout Jesus' childhood, Satan was probably taking attempts on his life. Wouldn't you think? One way or the other. You know what I mean? Falling out of a tree. You know? Whatever. Probably taking attempts on his life. And then you think about what Satan must have thought when he finally saw Jesus hanging on that cross, blood pouring out of him. And when Jesus said, it is finished, I'm sure Satan was doing some sort of celebration dance, fist pumps in the air, you know. Well, listen, write this down. The death of Jesus was not Satan's victory. It was his mockery. The death of Jesus was not Satan's victory. It was his mockery. You writing this stuff down? Because this is powerful, and you're going to see how. Remember last week I told you how God used the physical exodus as a, prof- a prophetic picture of a spiritual exodus, okay? Now, usually kind of when we talk about this, I usually kind of start with the Old Covenant and, and show how it points to the New Covenant. I, this week I kind of started with Jesus, and now let's look back at Moses. Let's look back at the physical exodus, that ancient exodus that had to do with the people of Israel and Egypt. We know that Israel was oppressed... Maybe you don't know this. Israel was oppressed by a seriously polytheistic nation. In other words, they worshiped multiple gods. I mean, numerous gods. In fact, most scholars believe that Egypt at that time, and probably maybe still, worshiped over 80 gods. I mean, there's just a god for everything. Okay? And so think about uh, Israel. Those gods were everywhere. They're building things that look like gods. They're hieroglyphics. They're everywhere, on display. And listen, don't think that those displays of those foreign gods did not remind Israel that they were slaves. Remind Israel that their god was a phony and that the Egyptian gods were stronger because after all, they are enslaved. They are oppressed, you know? To remind them that there was no hope for them. They could forget about living a different life than what they've already lived in Egypt. Doesn't that sound familiar? Isn't that what kind of comes in our head? You can forget about living a different life. You've lived there too long. You can forget about it. Even though it's far from the truth. That's what those little reminders, and that's where that condemnation, the, the enemy tries to bring in those little reminders. He tries to make us think something different 
than what is really actually true about our God. And think about it. There are statues everywhere, and especially of Pharaoh. We know that Pharaoh was literally considered one of their gods. In fact, what is this picture? I brought this picture of the Sphinx. Is it up there? Yeah. So look at that big old thing. You know what I mean? And, of course, the nose is all falling off, and it's all old now. You know what I mean? But could you imagine walking to work, and every day you've got to look at that thing? It's like... I mean, that's pretty... Uh, I mean, look at that thing. It's huge, those big arms out there, you know? That's a picture of Pharaoh. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, statue of one of the main gods of Egypt. So these reminders, I'm, I'm never going to get out of this. Look at Exodus 6.1. Remember, we're kind of taking a, a leapfrog approach to Exodus. We're just jumping kind of in different spots. Look at Exodus chapter 6. Look what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. And it says, For under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. In other, in other words, under compulsion, which basically means uh, strong and mighty. So under a, a strong and mighty act, Pharaoh is going to be compelled to let them go. Not just let them go, to, to force them out. Get out of here. Just go. Remember the story. Just get. So what's going on here? God was about to bust these guys out of prison. Right? Under compulsion. He was about to bust the doors wide open. He was about to jimmy the stronghold that the Egyptians had over the Israelites. And what did he use? Check it out. Exodus uh, 7, the very next chapter, verse 4. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hands on Egypt. It doesn't sound good at all. You know what I mean? God got the whole world in his hand. He's about to lay it on Egypt. You know what I mean? Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts. By the way, I just love that God called his people his hosts. You know what I mean? This morning... You know, we didn't have the drums, we didn't have the bass, and it was, it was acoustic. But man, we were a people that were hosting the presence of God, weren't we? Didn't take all that. They didn't have, well, I guess maybe the Israelites might have had electric guitars. I don't remember when those came about. But bottom line, we are people that host the presence of the Lord. I love that he calls them my host. So I'm going to lay my big old hand on Egypt and bring out my host, my worshipers, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt. And how is he going to do it? By great judgments. And we know that he's talking about the plagues. He uses the plagues to jimmy the people of Israel out of Egypt. You ever thought about that? That's what it says. By great judgments, by the plagues, I'm going to Get my people out of here. Now, the plagues weren't just against Pharaoh and his people. They were against all the gods of Egypt. And remember, they were polytheistic. There was multiple gods, over 80 of them. And what God was about to do, he was about to address the insufficiency of every one of those gods. Amen? Every plague, one way or the other, defied the power of of one or more of the gods that Egypt worshipped. And listen, God could have just come in and he could have just done one big boom and been done with it. But listen, he intentionally made a mockery 
<laughs> of the gods that Israel was viewing now, because they'd been there so long and seeing them everywhere, he intentionally made a mockery of the gods that professed to be greater than their gods. And by this time, Israel was probably believing it. After all, they were still slaves. Cried out, cried out, cried out in distress. Still slaves. It's been a long time now. God said, you know what? I could, I could, I could just snap and this be done. But you know what I think I'll do? <laughs> you know, God's got a little... It's like, <laughs> I'm going to make a mockery of these insufficient, unpowerful jokes of a God. Isn't that cool? And we don't have time to look at all ten plagues and the ways that God made a mockery of them, but I do want to focus on two, okay? We're going to focus on the first plague and the last plague, okay? And there's eight sandwiched in between those two, but the first plague and the last plague. The first plague had to do with the Nile. You guys know the story, right? It had to do with the Nile. And something important to understand is that the Nile was like the center of their culture. It was the center of their lives. And there were multiple, multiple gods that had to do with the Nile. Just to give a few, there was one called Khnam. Khnam. And listen, Khnam was considered the guardian of the Nile. I guess when all your fish and your routes of importing and exporting and your whole economy centers around that river, I guess you need a guardian, right? So they had a God set up. His name was Khnum. I probably would have picked something different like, you know, I don't know. I was trying to think of that one uh, movie with uh, sword, Arnold Schwarzenegger. What was it? Conan. You know what I mean? Like Conan. So listen, if you remember looking at hieroglyphics and Egypt stuff and school and if you're whatever into that kind of stuff, you'll have seen, you'll have seen Knum because he's basically a human being with a uh, ram's head, okay? So next time you're looking at hieroglyphics, you know, we do that often, you know, trying to read them and trying to, what are you saying to me? You know, whatever. You'll notice that God, okay? And then another one was a name Hoppy and Hoppy was considered the spirit of the Nile. And man, I just think this is so interesting that he was considered the spirit of the Nile. And he was kind of a, he was all about uh, taking care of the, uh, he was like the Lord of the fishes. He was the Lord of the fishes, Lord of all the li- wildlife, Lord of the birds. He was also considered the Lord of the marshes. Cause you know, when you have rivers, there's usually marshy areas and there's great things, I suppose that can come out of marshy areas, but he was Lord of the flies, Lord of the, no, he was Lord, of, and I thought about this. Wow, the spirit of the Nile was considered Lord of the marshes. And I thought this week, man, that sounds, a marsh isn't a whole lot different than a miry clay, is it? And what was the miry clay? It was a picture of the condition that sin leaves you in, the spirit that it leaves you in. Last week we talked about that spirit of fainting. And there was a God that was literally the spirit of that Nile, the, the Lord of that marshes. There was something, I believe, symbolically there's something that was controlling the very faint heart of the people of Israel. They thought maybe it was about making sure they had enough fish and birds. I think the enemy was trying to do something uh, different, oppress the people. And then the main God that had to do with the Nile, his name was Osiris. And he was actually kind of like the, the, one of the top gods of Egypt. Some consider him to have been the number two God of Egypt. He was considered the God of the underworld. Okay, this is pretty dark and demonic, isn't it? The God of the underworld. I can't, that doesn't sound good, you know? 
And listen, the Egyptians believed that the River Nile was Osiris's bloodstream. Wow. I mean, that's deep. That's deep. I think it's interesting, too, that when it comes to the Nile, that picture, that there was three main gods. There's a lot of other little ones, but three main gods. One had to do with a human being. One had to do with a spirit. And one was considered the top dog, which is a total distortion of the Trinity, isn't it? We won't go there, but you can see what I'm talking about. So Osiris was believed to be the, the, uh, the river was the, his bloodstream, okay? Now listen, I don't mean to be Captain Obvious here. But what did God do to the Nile? He turned it to blood. The way that God chose to mock the power, the abilities, the sufficiencies of all of those gods, but especially these three, the the Nile gods, and there were others, but the way that he chose to mock it was with blood. Is that a coincidence? I think not. Isn't that interesting? So that's the first plague. The last plague we know is basically the death of the firstborn. We know in Exodus 12, you don't have to turn there, but in Exodus 12, verse 12, it says, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. We've all seen the movie. Okay, Charlton Heston brought it, you know. Both man and beast. Listen, both man and beast. I mean, this was a big deal both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment, for I am the Lord. So there's one last plague, and this one last plague was going to mock all of the gods of Egypt. That's what it just said there. Especially Pharaoh. Listen, you, you, Pharaoh was considered God number one. And then maybe Osiris and you know, maybe Ra or whatever. But Pharaoh was considered the man. You know, he's the man. Okay? So God says, I am going to show judgment. I am about to knock the teeth out of all the gods of Egypt. This last act, this last jimmy is going to affect all of them. And by the way, I don't know if you remember, but this is the only plague that could also affect the Israelites. Remember? This is the only plague that could also affect the people of God. And I believe it's because of the power that the Egyptians held over Israel was strong. They'd been there a long time, and I believe that God's desire was to see the doors completely open. A finished work. I'm going to take care of all these gods, and you know what? I'm going to include this. I'm going to include you in this. And then I'm going to do something here that's so significant that it's going to close, it's going to um, fling wide those doors forever. And there's no reason that you should ever have to go climb back up in that prison cell and be in bondage. God, in this plague, God, in His mercy, provided a way of escape. What was it? It was blood. Every person that would put blood of the lamb, of a pure lamb, and you know all the requirements, over their doorpost and lintel, they would be shown mercy. The spirit of death, the destroyer, would pass over them. The blood spoke mercy to the slaves. You guys see that? Isn't that powerful? Blood over the doorpost to protect them from the destroyer. 
And at the very same time, the blood spoke mockery to the oppressor. Remember what we said. God used the physical exodus as a prophetic picture of a spiritual exodus. The ten plagues, God used once again, just like he did in the New Testament. He foreshadowed it. He typed it. He became a prophetic picture. In the Old Testament, he used blood to show mercy to the slave and mockery to the oppressor. Now, why is this important? I want us to look at Isaiah 61 one more time. It says that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And I'm reading out of the NAS this time. And it says, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Liberty and freedom sound like the same thing, but they're two different words. And it's, it's huge for us to understand this. The word liberty means, it comes from a word that means a flowing, a running free, a release. Basically, he's saying Jesus opened the doors. Okay? But this other word for freedom is a totally different word. And it means, what we said it can mean, opening, a most complete opening. But it also, like, it literally is translated this, opening of the eyes. See, what Jesus did is he opened the doors. But if he doesn't also open your eyes to the insufficiency of the gods that once oppressed you, you're going to stay in the cell. You're never going to move. You're never going to go anywhere. But he didn't just do one. He did both. He opened the doors. He brought liberty. He led, the, he flung wide. He jimmied the door wide open. And at the very, at, all at the same time, he was opening the eyes of the people. Oh, maybe these gods aren't so powerful after all. Maybe the hold that they had on me wasn't as big of a deal as I thought it was. Do you understand why this is important for us? Because God has jimmied open the doors that sin had held us back in. It's wide open. It's done. This is a whole, complete, finished work. When Jesus said it is finished, it really was finished. It was finished because he jimmied that door so hard that the lock was broke. It'll never be locked again. Ever. When you, have, you, have you ever jimmied something open? You're like, dang it, how did I lock that? Oh, you know, and, you, and then the, you end up busting the lock to get in. That's what Jesus did. The enemy no longer has a lock to work with unless you give him a new lock. That's what he did. And at the very same time, he showed us the insufficiency, the powerlessness of all these goofy, foreign, false gods. These things that we used to be bound to, the things that we used to submit our hearts and our minds and our spirit to, the things that used to make us faint. He said, those things have no power over you. I need you to see that, God said. And if you don't see that, you're never going to leave the cell. And that's why we have believers running around still just inundated with sin. It's like, are you kidding me? How long have you known the Lord now? I'm not saying you got to be perfect, but that is, that is baby stuff. Does that make sense? You got a bunch of baby Christians that have been around for 50 years. Why? Because they never saw that their oppressor was weak. Write this down. We will not walk in freedom from sin until we see the oppressor defeated. 
want you guys to stand.